0: Welcome to another episode of Overcome Out Loud with Charlie Smith. This podcast is uh, committed to sharing the stories of people that have overcome adversity and challenge in their lives to give other people hope. You know, I found so many people suffer in silence uh, that by sharing our overcome stories and the, the mountains that we've had to climb, we can give other people hope and lessons. And I'm, I'm so excited today. And, and it's been a little bit nostalgic to have with me uh, my guest today, Andrew McKenna. Andrew, welcome.
1: Thank you very much, Charlie. Pleasure to be with you.
0: Yeah, it's so so great to have you. And we'll get into um, all of the incredible lessons. And I personally want to thank you for... You know, both the vulnerability and the courage that you've had in, in in walking your path so publicly, Andrew is, you know, I'll say both an inspirational and motivational speaker. I think his story is powerful in both respects. It gives people inspiration that no matter where they are and what they've fallen to, that they can get back up and move forward. And I think it motivates people to do that. He's the author of an incredible book called Sheer Madness from Federal Prosecutor. That's right. Federal Prosecutor to Federal Prisoner. And, and we're going to get into all that rear view mirror stuff and and how he's turned that into I think you know we'll say you know it's amazing how people can turn you know um their setbacks into a comeback or or their their mess into a miracle and you've done both and so I just I personally thank you for the courage and and the voice that you've given uh overcoming adversity and, and you had some some down days some really dark spots in your life and and we'll get into all that and you know, so from an origin standpoint, you know, I think where people come from, I've, I've always used it as kind of a bit of a, bar, a barometer and a bit of a GPS as to where we go. It, it all starts somewhere. So I know you grew up in a small town in upstate New York. Can you share a little bit about what your early days were like, uh, Andrew?
1: Sure. Uh, so I grew up in a little town called Schenectady, New York, and it's up near Albany, uh, the capital, of course. And uh, it's, it's a city, uh, technically but it's a very, very small city. Uh, it has a lot of charm, uh, but it also has a lot of problems. And there's, um, you know, it's a GE town, old GE town from the right. 60s and 70s. And they started to pull out and move south and move overseas and stuff. Uh, and so they left a lot of, um, uh, left a lot behind, but also uh, uh, a lot of history. I grew up, in a very normal, you know, I guess you could say normal. You know, we always joke about what, what does normal mean, but you know, grew up in a two-parent household, uh, three older siblings. My father was a college professor for for fifty years at a small school called Sienna College. Oh yeah. My mom was a was a French and English teacher. Uh, at, at, at Shaker Bennel School up in, in Colony. And I know you know the area a little bit. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I, I grew up with educators. And my dad was a um, uh, kind of a uh, not a tough guy. He was, he was a he was a smart guy, but he grew up kind of in a tough neighborhood in the Bronx, in, the, in an Irish neighborhood in the Bronx back in the old days. And um, my mom was from uh, rural Vermont, and she was one of the, you know, the pioneers for um, for females at that point to go on to get master's degrees, and you know, in music and French. And so there was a lot going on in the household, but there was always sort of an undertone of of peace and quiet and uh, encouragement um and also a sense of the importance of equality, especially for my father uh, he grew up with parents that were um from Ireland came over and um you know there was an element of bigotry and this is this is in my mind now because I was just writing about it this morning so that's why it, it's top of mind um but he never he never passed that on to his children, you know, every everybody got a fair shot um, and he respected people that worked hard. Uh, he wasn't he didn't understand mental illness, certainly like we understand it today and neither did my mom. And so growing up, I didn't know, but I suffered from depression and worry and anxiety and all these things. And I think they probably assumed a lot of it was just normal childhood angst, I guess, is the best way to put it. Uh, But I remember, and I always tell this story, I remember being about eight years old and lying in the middle of this big open field um, at the local um, elementary school, Charlie, and staring at the sky and saying, what is my purpose? What am I doing here? How did we all get here? And just having these, you know, very existential sort of thoughts. And uh, I find that on, un- you know, looking back, I just think that that's unusual for an eight year old. And, but you couldn't express any sort of sadness or depression back in those days. It was always okay. Quit moping around and go out and play or go out and do something. So um, definitely a different upbringing, but compared to some of the upbringings of the folks that I work with and, um, uh, certainly folks that I prosecuted and folks that I was in prison with, uh, I had it easy and that that's a, it's a main factor in some of the work that I've been doing lately.
0: Yeah. I think that it, there's, there's so many things about that that are really important. I mean, I think we can see from the exterior, you know, my, my, my father was, was a, a mean college professor. He was a violent man, but he a college professor. My yeah. mom was a first grade school teacher. Kind of interesting. Some of the, the some of the similarities. Um, sure. So, but not a lot of peace in my house. And and but we don't know where this uns, this instability comes from as child as as children. You know, they say that that being being. Uh, rejected from the cool kids table reduces as many internal opioids as, as a, as a traumatic event at home. I mean, these little, you know, these little things of rejection, these little kind of fears or insecurities that can creep up as a kid, they get implanted somewhere. And I think it's so great that you would point out that you don't necessarily knew where these existential thoughts came from, but they had to have created pressure on an eight-year-old who's, you know, really just supposed to be enjoying life right up to bat at little league playing with his friends in the in in the in the in the dirt lots you know but you all of a sudden at 8 years old somewhere and i don't know if you've if you've looked where that initial kind of worry came from but you know i think worry is is something that's transferred very quickly into fear and anxiety that we want to escape and and obviously that comes about for you but but it's it's amazing to me that that we don't have to have these I think that's that's one of the kind of misconceptions about trauma, if you will, is that it doesn't have to be these violent episodes, these massive things that could happen, that there's these little subtle things that we could experience as kids that just shift our perspective and our programming a little bit. But boy, it sticks, doesn't it?
1: It sticks and it's powerful. And explaining that to people, even of the of the current generation is very difficult. Uh, Many people, as you mentioned, are still in the belief that You know, trauma is coming back from from a war or being a first responder and responding to, um, you know, an active shooter situation or, you know, being, you know, being in something very serious. So there's a great therapist that always talks about trauma with a capital T and trauma with a, a lowercase T, but only in its description, like what you said, really caught my ear, not sitting at the cool kids table. That that piece of rejection as a young child um, is is that that those are the early years when you're building your lens about yourself and how you see the world, but really about yourself and something like that. I worry I'm a natural worrier. And this is what I talk about with my therapist all the time. But um, my 15 year old, I'm always worried about his feelings to the point where. It, it affects my life, and so where does that come from? That must come from something that I went through um, because I know that stuff that you and I were just talking about as an eight-year-old, that worry, those thoughts. Why wasn't I just as free, happy, loving, um, joyful child? But I, for some reason, I wasn't, and I played Little League, and I played sports and stuff like that but I was always had this feeling of some, some weight on my shoulders. Um, And so I've explored it somewhat. And of course there could be some subconscious things, some things that I've buried um, from a child. And, you know, I'm not suggesting child sexual abuse. I'm not suggesting, because I don't know, but I'm not ruling out anything. Something happened and the, issue is I carried that into my teens and into college and into my thirties. Um, and it's something that I still struggle with on a daily basis.
0: Uh, It's so, it's so important because, you know, what you don't deal with will deal with you. And, and, and I think at a young age, we don't even know what we're dealing with. And that's why it's so important you know when when people like you speak to uh, younger generations that we we continue to emphasize. In fact, I was on the phone with a performance coach this morning, talking about the importance of emphasizing in every presentation we, can, we give, the courage and the strength that it takes to ask for help at any age, and that it's a sign of it's a sign of self compassion, it's a sign of strength. It is you know, what most really successful people have gotten good at is asking for help. But somehow we have this mentality of, you know, fall down seven, get eight, up eight times, pull yourself up by your bootstraps son. you know, but but really it's hard sometimes and, and it's hard to get back up. And, and so I'm so just appreciative of you mentioning how trapped you felt in the inability because it wasn't very common for us to ask for help. We didn't, our parents didn't know how to get us help, even if we'd asked for it, because there was so much stigma around, you know, mental health and and the understanding of it. And I think that we'll, we'll just take that moment for you to recognize that you didn't, even though you didn't know what was going on, talking about it sure wasn't an option at that point. It was Barry's stuff and just try to be, like you said earlier, when we started, just try to be normal. Really?
1: Right. I know that's the thing. And you, I mean, you nailed it right on that. And thanks for saying what you did. I appreciate that. And when I, same thing, when I speak to groups, I, I, I say it 50 different ways, but I, the point is ask for help. And I also say, let's say I'm speaking to a group of lawyers. or I spoke to a group of, um, um, You know, NFL players, uh, not a group, but uh, it was a fundraiser and um, whatever group it is. We also as individuals have a responsibility to look at the person next to us and recognize someone else that might be struggling. I feel we have a responsibility uh, under the social contract or however you want to look at it is to kind of like pick that person up. How are you doing? The suicide rates, you know, are incredibly high right now. And as far as I know, there was never a period when they were incredibly low. So, you know, picking someone else up, lending an ear, trying to help out. Um, I love that meme, Charlie, that, you know, you see on social media. It's be nice to everybody. You have no idea what they're going through. Um, so I, I talk about my son because these are really formative years for him. And I think back to my own uh, teenage years where I was just reckless and wild. Um, A lot of that was bearing, you know, my anxiety, uh, but really imparting that help each other out. This is all we have. And I think COVID taught us a lot of lessons. But This is really we only have each other in this. Um maybe somebody says that's corny or something, but frankly, I don't care because it is, it's the truth.
0: Yeah, I think the proof I think that I think science will prove out that human connection um is 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 innate to our survival and to deny it is 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 kind of a, a bit ignorant. I just by that I just mean not knowing, but but human connection and reliance on our fellow man is is foundational to our survival. And you know, just as a right. segue, I'll share with you which I think you'll find interesting that we spend a lot of time, you know, um, addressing uh, mental health. We don't spend enough time addressing mental health issues. And, and so, you know, between the, between the years of 1967 and the year 2000, there were over 97,000 abs- psychological abstracts done on worry, anxiety, and depression. During that same time period, happiness, well-being, and, and hope, 5,000. You know, we don't teach, you know, it's it's one thing to get people to zero and say, okay, you're now, you know, not as depressed and you're now not dealing with your anxiety, but let's get you to thrive and teaching people the skills that they need to overcome. Because in the history of telling someone to stop worrying, no one's ever stopped worrying. But if you focus on things like gratitude, and if you focus on the things that are going well in your life, and you do that over an extended period of time, you can incrementally start to not worry as much or start to see more good things. But, you know, I think we just don't spend enough time with mental health, you know, uh, not, not just a lack of mental illness, but actually being mentally healthy and, and what that looks like. And I'm, I, 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 see you as someone who's really on the front lines, um, of changing that narrative. So thank you. And you know, it's interesting, right? Cause with a group, with a, with a house of educators and a few older brothers, you, you didn't make it through high school. Did you there boss?
1: No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and the funny thing too, is, um, my father was a, a romantics language professor. So he spoke, um, fluently, um, Spanish and other languages and spent, he taught Spanish history. My mom was a language teacher. None of the children speak a second language. We barely speak English correctly. So, um, yeah, I didn't, I dropped out of school, um, in the 11th grade and, um, uh, you know, people said, "Well, why? Why?" And I said, "I'm I'm bored, I'm getting in trouble, and I want to get out of Schenectady." And I always had this strange fear that I would never get out of Schenectady. And there's nothing wrong with Schenectady; it's a great place. The restaurants, and you know uh, Albany uh, a bit, Charlie, and um, you know Schenectady's is a, a wonderful place. And but there's always this thing like I'm never going to get out, and I. You know i was just i started feeling like i was tumbling so i went to an air force recruiter and he said um of course you know he said what do you want to do and i said well huh i don't know i guess i want to fly planes and he goes okay you can fly planes <laughs> well of course i hadn't been to college yet and i was 17 and you know he, he he got me into the air force. Let's put it this way. And I was grateful now looking back, but he got me into this really cool job. So I wasn't at flying planes, but I was um, attached to an army infantry unit, it was, became a Ford air controller. So I was um, on the ground with the radio talking to the pilot flying around a target area and directing his um, munitions fired from his aircraft onto targets. And We didn't have any wars going on at the time, thank God. Uh, So it was all uh, simulation and training. But, you know, looking back, I mean, we were ready to go. If we had to pack up, we were ready to go. Uh, But, yeah, I didn't. And and then I went and took my GED while I was in active duty. That was the one caveat. I had to get my GED. And so I did that. And my first duty station, uh, my only duty station other than training was Hawaii. So here I am, 18 year old kid, great shake, young, you know, and here, here I am in paradise for for three years. So
0: was there any, um, yeah, quite a shift. I mean, it's, it's funny. Cause I talk about my, my journey from, from, so- from Southern Maine to California is just a series of escapes, you know, and, and. And I, what I was always trying to escape was me, right? I thought if I got, if I just got somewhere else, whether it was out of Scarborough or out of Fairfield or, you know, I mean, I got to California never made it across the Pacific as you did. Um, But you got far away from, you know, that fear, you, you fear I'm not going to get out of Schenectady and and sure enough, you end up in Hawaii, but was it, was it, you talked about kind of tumbling and being bored. Was there a sense of just kind of thinking that if I got somewhere else, I could feel differently or were you trying to, do, do you know if there was an attachment to just kind of, just whatever the existing situation was, if I could change it, I could change the way I feel. And it was, but, it, but, but they say, wherever you go, there you are, that kept happening.
1: That kept happening. And that's sort of the geographic uh, solution or the cure, but it never really works. You really have to stay planted. Of course at the time, I think I made the right decision, but as an adult, <clears throat> you are, you know, you're the same person. So you change maybe your location, Pardon me, Charlie. But really, it's it could be wanderlust when it comes to occupations and professions. It could be, you know, so uh, Marine Corps judge, judge, advocate general as an attorney for the Marines. That wasn't good enough. I had to have a a job with being a prosecutor with the Justice Department. But all of a sudden, after a year and a half, that wasn't good enough. So I applied to be um, a CIA officer uh, you know, that wasn't good enough. So then I needed, you know, it was one thing after the next, and then I needed to be, you know, an associate in one of the, you know, top 10 firms in the country. But but what the heck was I thinking? You know, I didn't, you can have a normal career, but that's not normal. Every day, sitting in your office, doing a really, really good job, which I did. And I'm proud of the work that I did. Um, and I got praised for that, but somehow still, that wasn't enough there's something inside of me that was lost uh, that, or that couldn't be filled. And that's really continued to stick with me. And when I lecture about it, I, I try to get folks to identify with that exact piece. And, you know, look at yourself, don't compare yourself to what's going on around, around you. And, you know, you, you are good enough. You, you, you're loved, you're liked, take some time to love and like yourself and and try to find that it's so difficult, but once people hear it and once people talk about it uh, to a professional or to a friend or to a, you know, a non-credentialed person, then it it helps. But that's where people have to end up or it's going to be a really shaky road ahead. And I see it every day. And I know you do as well. We, We get the phone calls about it.
0: And what I, what I hear so loudly, um, it's, it's, it's incredible to me. And I want to, I want to bring some context to it because, you know, we can call it a lot of things like the best term I've, call, I've, I've come up with, um, is destination disease. And, and it's like, you know, that, that idea that when I, and, and it's wherever I get, if if I continue to place my happiness, my fulfillment, my self-worth, my self-esteem, You know, in something outside of myself that whenever I achieve it and you've just described, you know, and we can talk more about these pieces, but you went from from dropping out of high school to going into the military to going to become a lawyer to achieving several rungs of success and still, you know, and I, I always talk about these two dials, you know beliefs and behaviors you know, still inside, you didn't feel worthy of it. And you attached your worth to uh, an event, to an outcome. And when that outcome came, because you attached your worth to it, it was, never, it was never enough. You never felt like you deserved it. I think people would call that, you know, a little bit of an imposter syndrome that, that a lot of people face, but you're just trying to behave yourself or achieve yourself into feeling good about yourself. There's self-esteem and then there's others' esteem. And we're, we're it seems like that chasing others' esteem, like this will define me, it, it, it's exhausting, first of all, and it's insatiable, right? Because it was never because you didn't have that internal belief that you were good enough. You were trying to find that everywhere else. And and it, you couldn't it was insatiable. That's what it sounds like.
1: Absolutely insatiable. And really, the uh, you know, the belief system that that will. You know, that next job, that next relationship, that next step, whatever it is, is, is somehow going to fix something it just isn't a reality. And I and I see it with with um, young kids. I see it with executives in their in their 60s and 70s. And it's it's absolutely amazing. And something you said uh, made me think of something, you know, the, the sense of chasing the dragon. Like, you know, for people who uh, have used opioids, for instance, um, you know, always trying to catch that that first feeling that you had the first time that you used. And there's parallels to that because it doesn't matter. You you could be, you know, clean. You could be somebody who's never done drugs or, or never used alcohol, um, but it can pop up in other ways. And So that was just just another one of my things to escape and get get rid of these feelings that I refused to sit with. I refused to sit with anything uncomfortable. Um, And it it absolutely led to a life of wreckage. I know, and when I I speak to people um, in some of these uh, companies, I know that if I put my mind to it, I can polish it up. I'm a quick study. And I'll do well at it. I'll shine at it. And you know, I'll be put like up here, like, you know, this is Andrew McKenna. And he look what all that we can do. And but it's a bunch of BS. You know, it's a it's it's BS because I I don't feel good inside I feel like a con man you know I feel like a con man and even in conversations that I have today 52 years old um and I'm at a uh, at an event and someone's asking me what I'm doing and I'm telling them the truth exactly what I do and um and I And this is rare now because I put a lot of work in and this isn't this isn't the way I am the way that I used to be. But that old feeling crept up of insecurity and this person's going to find out that I'm a fraud. Right. And so I had to I kind of got out of the conversation gracefully, went away. There's probably about 300 people at the event, found a little spot, sat down, talked myself through it mentally and i had to tell myself andrew you're not a fraud you know that's that's that old pathway in your brain that's creeping in to your system and you know do what you normally do you know you have the tools to deal with this and and you're telling the truth and you're doing fine pal you know and that's a comfortable self talk that a therapist years ago taught me um and with practice it comes but I'll tell you for that to pop up at the, in the context that it did the other night, uh, it's, it's a scary feeling. You know, this is a, you know, it's not a difficult thing. Um, so long as you practice, uh, and even practicing isn't difficult.
0: Yeah. What I'll, what I'll say in response to that is simply good good. I'm glad, you know, for me, it's like, that just shows I I view feelings now, like, like signal lights, you know, they're, they're out there in the streets for a reason. You know, I get green lights where I can just keep going. There's yellow lights where I'm like, what's, what is that? You know, what's coming up for me? And then there's red lights where it's like, you know what, step away from the conversation. I have a set of skills that I've learned to deal with this because it's, it's the avoidance. It's the, the driving through the red light. It's the not leaving the conversation, not having the ability to talk to yourself. Right. So, I mean, for for you being being in the profession you're in you know that that you got this pocket jury and it fucking is trying to find you guilty of everything whether you've done it or not and it just doesn't like you and you know I would say I'm an amateur you know arguing attorney for myself you happen to have a lot more skills in that area but we do need to advocate for ourselves we do need you know to to have a a script a healthy self-talk script so when those red lights come up we don't hurt ourselves we don't hurt somebody else we don't look to escape from it we just go oh I'm in red light how do I get back to green? How do I get back to center? How do I get back to self-regulation where I can have an honest conversation and, and deal with the fact that i my interesting, I still feel a little bit like a fraud that's coming up for me. Uh, I think that, you know, like I said, I'll go back to just, just reframing that as good. And I think it's amazing that everybody listening got a little kind of insight into mental, performance skills which is having a healthy set of self-talk scripts that you can use because otherwise you'll listen to yourself and and i that pocket jury is that's not a jury of your peers man that is that that's right those fuckers are out to get you (laughs) yes
1: they are they are and i would love it first of all you come up with the most beautiful analogies because it helps people that who may not understand exactly what you and I are talking about because you and I talk, we know immediately what we're talking about. Um, but someone who has an experience, maybe as deeply as we have, it's a bit of a mystery. So you're great at, at explaining. You're, you're really awesome. Um, and you provide, you thank me, I'm thanking you because you really are helping a ton of people with your work and your podcasts and beyond that. But, um, That's exactly right. You know, and that's a, and here's the thing, here's the hope piece to that. So for that night, what 10 minutes, I considered it a meditation by myself, re-entered the room. Everything was fine. Everything worked out fine. And, you know, no crises, no panic attacks, you know, nothing bad happened. The rest of the night was beautiful. And I enjoyed myself and met some really, really nice people. Um, So there is tons of hope to this, but this is what concerns me, Charlie. There's so many people out there that don't acknowledge this or don't have that level of self-awareness. Maybe because they haven't, maybe because they haven't crashed and burned in their lives. And I guess my message is you don't have to go that far. You know, when I when I talk to people, I don't say that, you know, if you don't if you don't take my suggestions or other people's suggestions, you know, you're going to end up robbing banks. I mean, that's never my message. It's it's just kind of take a look at how you're feeling, identify your value system, I guess, write it down a couple of words. This is what's important to me. And, And then, you know creating your set of behaviors or living in a way that's consistent with that. Um, but it's not, it's not a doom and gloom thing, but it is for a lot, unfortunately.
0: Well, I think to your point, it's, it's, I just don't think we teach people enough. We don't, we, 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 in schools, we teach them, what to think but we don't teach them how to think it's like okay so the turkish empire fell or the opium wars happened or you know the roman empire fell but it's like oh, those are facts and you can learn those and you can learn how to learn but but teaching people nice. about emotional intelligence teaching people about self-regulation i mean we're not the only ones that have this pocket jury we're not the only ones i mean we've we've got a heavy negative bias and you know i think the more we can do to share i mean you just don't hear a lot of season mature adults at the age of 52 willing to come on a podcast and say, I had to take a break. I had to develop a self-help script, some self-talk that was affirming to me. And then I had to go use that so I could go back and enjoy my knife, not my night. Now for you, I'll say this. For you, the risk of not doing that is the is a potential relapse. And we'll get into how you know opioids, you know, solve emotional problems more than they solve physical problems, especially if you're susceptible to them. But but we don't have enough people saying This is what I run into when I feel imposter syndrome or I feel negative self-worth and I have a script that I use and I go outside and I do it. That's, that's what we should be teaching people because otherwise people just avoid it. They numb it out and they don't know that there's a solution to it. They think, Oh, that's, that's the way my mind works. And that's why I think Carol DeWick's work at Stanford and the growth mindset is that we can, we can reshape those neural pathways. We can, we do have the ability to change the way we think by changing the things we say to ourselves. So I think, you know, you know you can only you can only save you know or share one message at a time but i i just if if people take nothing else out of this entire episode and i know there's going to be more that little snippet of of a feeling you know an uncomfortable feeling and then a behavior and a set of behaviors that went along with fixing it and then the fact that you enjoyed that whole night was to me it was it was drop the mic uh, it was awesome um and let's get into- and i Good.
1: We will, and I want to say what you were what you were saying is you're right. We don't teach this in schools, and where would be the best place to start? Elementary school it would be the best place to start, and then you know, age appropriate, of course. And then gradually into middle school, high school, and continue on in college. You know, while the brain's being developed, you know, let's start focusing on that that realization that, that that piece, the mental piece of, you know, just because you think it doesn't mean it's true. Something as simple as that and, and spending some time on that, you know, and I don't know if you're a fan of Noam Chomsky. Um, I started, you know, reading uh, Professor Chomsky's work, some of it in when I was um, in high school, actually, and then in college. Uh, and he's, the of course, at MIT linguistics uh, professor linguistics professor but he's um you know politics aside he's uh, a brilliant man and he talks about education and he talks about i forget the phrase he uses but it's basically the student shows up and he's got an empty cup professor fills it with knowledge or water equals knowledge and then on the test the student puts it back in to the professor's picture <clears throat> but, and this is a little bit of an aside, but, you know, that critical thinking piece is so important. And when my son and I take walks, uh, you know, he and his friends will have ideas or he'll pick up things from the news and the Internet. And it's typically one sided. And I always say, well, and maybe law school will put this into my brain or whatever. But it said, What's the other side? What's the other's argument? Because as a lawyer, of course, you need to know the other person's argument. And so, you know, look at those sorts of things and, you know, understand both sides of the arguments
0: if you can. Yeah, for sure. I think the 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 next the next thing that I found interesting is while you're you're having this success. You you got out of the military and wh- you, you experienced a little bit of back pain. Is that where I mean, I know you'd probably recreationally use some marijuana and had, had some drinks, but you're ex- excelling in this career of of continuing to achieve and, and you get through the military and your your doctor gives you some some Loratab.
1: tab. Yeah, yeah, I hurt my back in the Marines. Um, I couldn't you know, tell, uh, uh, the military that I was injured because it would have derailed or slowed down my career. And again, I'm just thinking career, I need this. I need that. Yeah. So I grinned and bared it, you know, and for, um, uh, almost two years, I guess I treated it like it should have been treated, uh, with, you know, ice packs, heating pads. I was already in great shape. So my core strength was decent. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, but I got out and went to the justice department and started traveling a uh, lot, putting on weight. We went to a local doctor in um, Washington, D.C., area, and he prescribed uh Lortab. And um, it was really the first time I had tried anything that strong or really anything other than a regular Tylenol or a Motrin. So, uh, Charlie. You want to talk about, you know, the savior of medications for people with depression, anxiety, fear, worries, opioids. Um, And I quickly learned that if I took a few of those, you know, that stuff would go away.
0: Yeah. This is, this is important that, and I think that's why it's so easy for people to migrate into dependency, ultimately addiction, and then, and then kind of that shattered moral compass those drugs work way better on emotional pain than they do physical pain. I just, it's just what they do. And, and all of a sudden you get that relief. And this is where I think, you know, the fact that we don't deal with things ultimately, if we have an unhealthy way to deal with them, then we're going to become quote unquote addicted to escape. And that's what happened. You had all of these things, that anxiety, that depression, that worry, that fear, this false self, this, I couldn't achieve enough. And then all of a sudden that, that opioid, that, that addicted pill, took it away. And your body said, well, I want that again.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And it's just spun out of control. I, it was, which it does for so many. Um, but for me it, it, it was profound. I, I, and the doctor would continue to prescribe and prescribe and prescribe. And, you know, we, we made it all the way up to, you know, Percocet, 90 120 at a time in terms of him prescribing um you know i was with the justice department i was with the narcotic and dangerous drug section the criminal division you know so i'm i in his eyes i was probably the last person to be abusing these things but it's exactly what i was doing and um but it, it it just like the other piece it's a house of cards it can't be sustained And even doing it on a small level, if you're doing it to escape something, and it's one of the most misused prescription drugs on wall street right now. And when I speak with financial groups, um, you know, you see the heads nodding and they, you know, tell me off the record guys will tell me off the record. It's, it's when they want to shut off at night, that's what they'll do. And, um, You know, a lot of them think that they have it under control, but these guys are, you know, fresh out of, you know, some of the top schools in the country and, you know, performing at a very high level uh, and managing a lot of other people's money. Um, So they are under a lot of pressure and they still have the same underlying issues that normal, we call normal, but you know what I mean? Like people who don't have addiction issues right off the rip. Um, and it's easily abused and it's a slippery slope because once you start down, uh, you know, your tolerance goes up, the, your same emotional pain is still there. You haven't addressed any of that. Um, and so, it, you know, you can really be quickly off to the races with that.
0: And you're, so, you're, and you're chasing, as I think, as you said, you're chasing that dragon. And I think people, you know, don't understand all of this, the, the symptoms of dependency. And I'll just highlight, you know, because this plays into, I think a lot of your story is, you know, the dishonesty part. And I, I hear, and I'm, I'm sure you'll confirm if you're anything like me that, you know the stories you tell the doctor about where your prescription is or how many you took or or that it's my 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 shaving kit at the other hotel i mean we don't think of ourselves i mean you're in the you're in the law practice you're rep, you're you work for the justice department i mean here you are this pillar of you know the scales of justice and i'm sure you don't think of yourself as a dishonest guy i mean if you if you're like me you know just because i never put a ski mask on and robbed a wells fargo bank yet you you you, you don't I don't want to give a, I don't want to give away the whole story here, but that was my barometer for, that was my barometer for honesty. It's like, you know, if I don't, if I haven't, if I haven't transgressed to that level, then I'm honest yet. I've been lying to doctors about what I'm doing. I've been lying to my family about where I am. Had dishonesty kind of sunk its way into your moral fiber in a, in a sneaky way, Andrew.
1: It did. It really did. And I found myself um, as things got worse. Well, exactly that though, but in the beginning it was doc. I was in Los Angeles, you know, for work. I left right. my, my pills there. Um, and in the very beginning he said, all right, well, no problem. I'll, I'll write you a new script. You know, I know you're coming back tomorrow. You said yep. Andrew, So just go pick him up. Um, and you know, he probably thought this guy's not going to lie to me. He knew what I did. I made sure he knew what I did. Um, especially as I started wanting more and more and more. And, uh, but yeah, this honesty snuck in, um, again, my vet is part of my value system is not to be a liar. (laughs) Right. You know, um, and so, but then it became even bigger stuff. It became like my behaviors changed and you know, if I was late for court or late on getting something filed or in my relationship with my wife at the time, you know, it just seemed like everything started becoming a, a intertwined in the lie. And sometimes, Charlie, it was for no reason whatsoever. You know, it wasn't even to gain an advantage or to make an excuse. It was just, I don't know, I, I really lost my way. And dishonesty is an awful thing.
0: You know well principles principles are are like muscles you know and, and and they're very simply either exercised or they're not and whichever muscle you exercise gets stronger and so you're no different than, than me and a lot of people with substance abuse issues I mean we start to we start to exercise our dishonesty muscle by lying about this and then all of a sudden that muscle is just strong so you ask me where I am and I say I'm on the freeway at Canaan when I'm really still in my office or in the valley it's it's a little lie but it's just what I do I just lie about I've just learned that muscle, that dishonesty muscle is stronger than my honesty muscle. I can't different. I can't say I'm going to just lie about my drugs. I'm just going to lie about that. And I'm going to bracket my lying to this little place. And then it's going to stay in that place. It's like, no, bro, as soon as you start lying, you're going to be a liar. And how you do anything right. ultimately is how you do everything. And the next thing you know you know, we start to, this this is the way I'll put it. And and you can, you can confirm or deny uh, the the relationship to this is we stop trusting ourselves. We don't see ourselves as trustworthy subconsciously. It's like, you know, the conscious mind sets the goal. Our subconscious goes to get it. And so our conscious mind is lying and our subconscious goes, well, you're a fucking liar. So let's just lie about what we got at the grocery store. Let's lie about, you know, what the judge said. Let's lie about, you know, the grade I got, let's lie about if the deal is good. It's just, you're, you just become, what you've been doing and, and, and yeah, you lose. And what does
1: that do to your self-esteem that that you already have to struggle with? You know, now you've, you've acknowledged basically, well, not, you know, not only am I, you know, a piece of crap and, you know, a fraud, but I also, now I'm also a confirmed liar. So this is one of the, the exercises to reverse this You know, which I've practiced over the years is, look, all we have, you know, is our words, basically. So I'm having this casual conversation the other day with a friend of mine, happens to be a judge. And uh, but it wasn't about a case or anything. And we met for coffee and he said, where were you? Where were you before this or something like that? And I said, oh, it was the, the supermarket. And, but I wasn't at the supermarket. I was at a convenience store on the other side of the town, and I was pointing the supermarket like you can see, on cameras over yeah. there. And I stopped. And so we, the conversation kept going, and I'm staring at this man and I'm saying, wait, wait a minute. I have to clarify something. I wasn't at the supermarket, I was at the 7 Eleven in that direction. And he said, well, why did you tell me you were at the supermarket? Not that it mattered. Of course, of course. And I said, you know, Mike, I don't know. I don't know why. But I want to make sure that I clear that up with you because I, you know, I want to be exact in my words now because, of course, it doesn't matter. We could have gone on with the conversation. It was irrelevant. But to me, it's the need to be exact in my words um and probably it's one of the quirks of my personality that sometimes i overdo things and but maybe i'm overdoing being careful with that but something tells me i'm not
0: you're well i will tell you as a very objective third party absolutely not being far-reaching with that that is that is foundational to our recovery and our existence as human beings is to learn how to work the principle i mean if you don't want to be honest then it doesn't really matter if you don't see that as a principle you want to live by and it doesn't really drive your life and you can get away with lots of shit but if in fact sure. that is a principle that you want to live by and you find it to be foundational to your life and how you want to live then you have to exercise that muscle so that the next time you're you're faced with a challenge that your honesty muscle as you just showed you you just proved the point that your that, that, that your principles need to be exercised and 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 you know you're not always going to be on guard but you've got this awareness now which I think will be fo- foundational to this episode is how important self-awareness is because you've described two incidents where you had a situation that you were uncomfortable with and you took corrective action to fix it and you didn't have to go to bed with guilt or shame about yourself or the behavior and that's I think people think you know and again, whether people have to correct where they were, you know is up to them. But if there's something you're trying to do and you're not doing it, reflecting on how do I want to improve and what can I do to improve as a human being is a really, really important exercise and so i just you know you're you're yeah these these examples andrew have been so and no no surprise given how how you've turned your life around are just so important and this is what we don't talk to people about you know it's if you want to live by a principle and how you do anything is how you do everything And you know self- yeah. dis- self-discipline self and self-control they are foundational to most people's healthy sense of self-esteem so you're building self-esteem i mean that was another exercise i think you would agree right. in, in building That's your self-esteem right.
1: And I also think in, you know, along with that is the small things matter for me. The little things matter. And um, you know, I know that I'm not, never going to be this perfectly principled person. Um, the example would be if I'm driving down the road and I see this big duffel bag on the side of the, of the road and there's a little bit of cash like flying out from the wind from it. I don't know why I always had this fancy. It was so <laughs> funny. What would I do? Well, look, I don't know. Um, But, you know, it's that kind of thing. I don't know if I'll ever be completely principled, but it is. It's the little things. And, you know, when we're talking to younger people, um, you know, part of the part of getting the handle on the mental health piece and the depression and the anxiety, a lot of that's based in fear and self-esteem. And if we can start instilling these ideas, it's these little anecdotes, maybe, or something. Um, maybe the hope is they pick up on some of that and they start looking themselves a little bit, you know?
0: Yeah, for sure they will. So, so you're having this great this great career, but you've now you've now introduced yourselves to an increasing amount of dependence upon, and, and probably what's 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 you know morphing into a severe addiction, and and so the moral compass is broken. The lies are the lies are becoming greater and greater the dishonesty greater and greater the moral compass shattered. And, you know, so walk us through, you know, because I want to, I want to get to the, the, to the comeback and, but, but we're still, we're still in the midst of a setback here. So how did life turn? How did life turn so dramatically? I I mean, I think I know, but I think in your words, we need to know how your life turned so dramatically in the opposite direction of, of where you were going.
1: Well, I, I left the justice department under some sort of, I guess, uh, well, you could say kind of shady circumstances. My life had spun out of control pretty, pretty well at this point. And. Um, it's sometimes it's tough to talk about. I, yeah, man. I, um, I ended up leaving. Um, and I had two young kids at the time with my wife at the time. And we ended up moving um, back up to New York from Washington, D.C. And uh, we we didn't move to the city. We moved upstate um, to where her parents were. And I got a job uh, at a law firm. And, you know, good law firm. Um, worked for one of the premier criminal defense attorneys in the country, Steve Coffey. And... Um, he brought me on to do federal work, and so I was doing uh, federal trials in, um, in, in courts in Albany and Syracuse and some stuff in New York City as well, but I couldn't, I couldn't get the pain meds anymore. I couldn't find a doctor in New York, anywhere near the doctors in Washington, D.C. and Alexandria, Virginia, so uh, I kept calling around trying to get Percocet. And I'd get a few here and there from doctors, but it was clear I was doctor shopping. And at this point, New York it was out ahead of the uh, the herd in terms of the, the dangers of opioids. The big crisis, the epidemic had not hit yet, uh, but they were really ahead of it. And so doctors were becoming less and less willing to prescribe. Uh, so I called a friend of mine and he said, um, he said, well, I can't get Percocet, but I can get something called Oxycontin, which we now know is uh, heroin and a pill. Yep. And, you know, I. Um, so I left my law office that day and drove to his house and I wasn't going through severe withdrawals from the Percocet or the Lord tab. I felt physically uncomfortable, Um but th- I knew that would pass. And then I started using Oxycontin, um, not to be confused with Oxycodone, which is a, a, a lesser painkiller, <clears throat> still very powerful, nothing to be messed with by any means. But Oxycontin was a game changer, Charlie. It was, you know, um, I, I, I could function, uh, all of the feelings of worry. Now, at this point in my career, I knew that I was capable of doing solid work. Uh, that wasn't really my concern anymore. It was my depression, my anxiety over uh, being a dad, something as simple as am I a good father? Um, You know, my relationship for all intents and purposes was already over, but, you know, at that point you're just thinking about the young kids and, um, you know, so here I am, you know, winning trials. Um, and I I really had a good training basis in the Marine Corps and the justice department for trial work. It's a very, very few strengths. And, but, um, being on my feet in the courtroom was one of them, was one of my strengths. And so I was winning and doing well. um, But then the OxyContin was so powerful that, um, you know, before long, I went from 180 milligram OxyContin to uh, almost four or five a day. And that's how quickly my tolerance built. So one day I ran out of them and I called my same friend. Now, this is a friend I knew since I was a kid. And he said, well, the guy who was selling them, he's gone. He got arrested. He got um, busted. And I said, oh, that stinks. I guess it was a few hours later, I started going through physical oxycontin withdrawals, which are the same, if not worse, than heroin withdrawals. At the time, I didn't know anything about heroin. And uh, so I called him up and I said, hey, um, his name in the book is Charlie, actually. And I said, uh, we'll use it here, too. I said, Charlie, uh, you know, I'm really starting to feel sick. Um, I'm wondering if it has anything to do with the oxycontin or the oxys. And he goes, yeah, it does. I said, well, I don't know. Maybe it doesn't because it feels like like the flu is coming on and it's coming on like gangbusters. And he goes, no, 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 no. That's what that's. Those are withdrawals. And now I'm throwing up in my office. I'm sweating. I got a client in the waiting room. My secretary's buzzing me and saying, are you going to see this client? What's going on? Are you OK in there? My door's closed. And uh, so we talk on the phone. And I, I said, well, and I always tell this piece of it. So what kind of effing drug dealer are you if you can't, if you don't have another source for these pills? And, um, yeah, I didn't know anybody on the street. You know, I, I was getting from this one guy. So anyhow, <clears throat> my stomach started to go into this incredible pain. And tightening up, my whole body started to, you know, really, really starting to go through it. And uh, finally on the phone, he goes, all right, just come on over. So I got in my car. I got over there. By the time I got there, I'd vomit on me and a suit and tie. um, Had a a court conference that afternoon. And on a uh, mirror on his table, small little mirror, he had a tiny little speck of tan powder. And excuse me, I had only ever seen heroin in kilo forms from seizures that we had done as as a prosecutor and he looked at me and i looked at him and we had been friends for an awful long time and i should have known that he had a problem at this point because in his apartment his couch was gone his table was gone his bed was sold his xbox or whatever video thing he had nothing left he was at he had a habit and he never told me Um, so I did that little speck of dust on the, uh, powder on the mirror and all of it went away. Nausea, the pain, everything, sweating stopped within seconds. And it was heroin. And he looked at me and he said, I never wanted to show you this. I never wanted to, to be the one to introduce you to this. And he and I are still dear friends today and he's clean and sober for, for years and years. Um, and he's just a remarkable friend and good man. Uh, and he apologized to me uh, later on. I'll tell you, I don't want to get ahead of the story. So um, within days, I was doing um, bags and bags of this. I guess they're called bags, but I guess the audience could, if they're not familiar, it's the dose. Uh, I mean, it looks like. Um, uh, It looks like a mailing stamp, like a forever stamp. It's that size and it has a tiny little bit of heroin in it. And 10 of those is called a bundle and um, 10 bundles is called a brick. And so I was doing, I was probably doing five or six bundles a day after a week's time. That's how quickly my tolerance grew and I was still going to court, I was still functioning. And this is the part that I hate to tell because it gives the impression to my audiences that that this is somehow manageable. And I am here on the Charlie Smith podcast, Overcome Out Loud, that this is not manageable. Uh, And eventually, There was no amount of heroin or OxyContin that I could do to feel better, short of dying. And I uh, went to my boss, told him the story, and he had his own suspicions. He said, you've been walking around here like you're on a cloud. Sometimes you look great, sometimes it looks like you haven't showered in two days. And it was just this constant thing of trying to score, you know, my fix, basically. And the money was just draining out of my account. Um, I ended up going to uh, rehab, um, got out, got a job doing something, but it wasn't law. And my wife had left, taking the, she took the children with her, uh, two little boys, two and three. pardon me and she um you know cut off all contact everything had to be done through family court and I didn't uh I didn't do well in family court um I had hired a lawyer who I end up not liking um you know the old ego came back thought that I could handle it on my own you know and Abe Lincoln said uh Uh, a lawyer represents himself as a fool for a client, that old saying. And sure enough, (laughs) you know, and uh, I was a fool. And I I just, you know, i would go through periods of not using and I still couldn't see my children. I would go through periods of using and not get caught, still couldn't see my children. So then things just, we set it up where I would have a, a visit with them um, once a month supervised visit. And Charlie, I went into a depression that I can't even describe. I didn't know it was possible. I believe what it is now having done enough research in Benny in the, in the behavioral health field, um, that it was the point of depression that you get to right up to the point of suicide. And, um, I, um, I really, I I really considered that, you know?
0: Yeah. Very dark days, man. Really dark days, Andrew. Dark. No, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it seems it is overwhelming at the time. And, you know, I, I just so much compassion and so much empathy for this journey and, and so much courage and vulnerability to share this. And, you know, we go back to, I mean, I think that you, you bring up so many things, but I think you know the the fallacy of this kind of functional addict you know it's it's like if you look at the and and thank you for for describing so clearly how unmanageable it really was first of all it's not sustainable right for any of us it's you know the run the runway ends you know when our beliefs right. and our behaviors are so out of alignment but also you know all of the things that you hold true your your role as a father your role as a husband you know when you're chasing that high they're all they're all eroding. They're all not being attended to. And, and that's spot, you know, that's, and that's why when you see, I think when I, when we see you in such an emotional state, it's because you know, that, that yourself is that all of these things that you worried about yourself becoming or are, are coming true. You're really becoming, you know, that thermostat of, you know, you become the person you conceive yourself to be and you, you, you can't, you can't perform your way out of it. You can't trial lawyer way out of it. You can't degree your way out of it. It's like, if you really have those, those limiting beliefs, uh, and you're using a substance that 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 substance is truly like, a I think they'll say a gorilla, you know, it's it's done with you when the gorilla says it's done and, and I'm, That's I'm, right. just, I'm just so um, I'm so honored really, I guess is probably the best word I could use to, to, to share this vulnerable moment with you and, and help people understand how dark those days get I think the world is obviously so much better off your your family so much better off that you found. A way out, but the darkness kind of overtakes you. I mean, I just I just describe it like a like a really black cloud and it's it's slowly just you know encompassing every bit of your existence to where you wish for the end. Maybe, maybe for whatever reason, you know, you don't end up at the end, but the end seems imminent. And you want the end. I mean, you you really in a way, you don't want the end, but you want the end.
1: Right. You want the end. And you know, one of the reasons I figured out why I still get very emotional is uh you know, reliving it certainly is emotional, um, but also cathartic in its own way. But when I speak to people individually who call me and I hear in their voice that, but they're at the stage where they think that they can still manage it. And I, you know, I fear for them. And sometimes I tell them that. Um, you know, when the time is right, I tell them that that uh, you know you're you're getting you're getting very close to a point that I got to, and I want you to really think about that. I want you to picture yourself in a plane in the nosedive where all the people that wanted to help you and offered to help you, or even could have helped you that you didn't ask, um you're getting to the point where they're not going to be able to help you anymore. Mm. And um, that's not to say, stop trying. That's not to say give up, but it's just, it's cautionary and it's upsetting to see other people go through that. But it's also gratifying to feel that, well, maybe my redemption piece you know, for what I really did, and I know we'll get to it here in a minute, um, is that, just that, is just getting someone just to think for just a moment, you know, maybe it's the, the school teacher, maybe it's the uh, construction worker, the developer, maybe it's the trader on Wall Street, or the law partner, at, you know, a firm, you know, just think for a minute where you're going, because everything you've told me Things are starting to fall off. Pieces are starting to fall off of your life that you might not be able to ever truly get back. And it, and, and when you get to that particular point, the the it's abject pain. And I don't want you to feel that pain. And there's a way of not doing it. There's a way of not feeling that pain. There's there's a way of, um, there's a way out, you know and if you can get out and if you can put in the work then you can live a beautiful beautiful life and you won't have to call me or you know Charlie Smith at 2 in the morning and and talk through things and I'm happy I'm happy to take the calls absolutely but you know there is a way you yeah know? Man, there really so is well a way said.
0: there is a way um and 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 you're that analogy of the of the, the 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 spiraling plane is so powerful because it's true. I mean, who a lot of people they 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 want to get out before that thing crashes and you're at the you're at the controls and you know you, you really I think it's a disservice that I think is is spoken about too much, which is hitting rock bottom. And the truth is you don't have to get any sicker to get better. You can you can turn you can pull that plane out of that tailspin you know, that's at, right. At, at 30,000 feet at 25,000 feet. I mean, it does go all the way down. It does crash. It does, I mean, that's, it, it is scorched. It you know, will. does, but you don't have to, you can, you can have no. the co-pilot. You can say
1: Got to hit rock bottom. I you hate don't, turn control.
0: you don't. It's when no. you stop digging, man, you can turn that thing. And, and, and I love, I love the analogy. Cause I'm like, and do it while there's people in the, you know, pull that thing. You're going to save a lot of people. If you can, if you can, you know, Write that ship earlier on in that in that decline and you know and, and i know you 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 weren't able to do that yet and and depression took over and and you were still you know like i i i said earlier what you don't deal with will deal with you and so what was the next how did this how did this story get worse so the
1: story really you know things continued to get worse i to the point where i didn't want to get out of bed I didn't want to function, didn't want to live, as you said, I I did. I wanted it to be over with. I wasn't using drugs at that point. Nothing was fun. I was using drugs, but not to be happy and not to be high. And, you know, those days were over, you know, Um, same same thing with drinking. Right. I remember back in college drinking parties. It was fun. You went home and then the next day, you know, you went and played football or you did whatever with your buddies from college. Um, But eventually that became, you know, drinking vodka in the morning, you know, as a professional just to get the shakes, wake up for the day. So anyhow, for me, um, the depression and fear became so strong. Um, I was driving to family court one day And uh, I knew that I was just going to get another beat down, um, that nothing would really change. It was just kind of like a conference. Okay, we'll set the matter down for another six months was basically it. Uh, I couldn't live without my sons. And. um, I mean, they were the most it's hard to explain to people because it's easy to say, well, why didn't you just stop? Why didn't you do it for them? But I had already crossed that line I crossed the line of, um, you know, where I was in the compulsion stage of my addiction and my use that I was too far gone. And without professional help, I could not have pulled out. And, and so anyhow, so I'm driving.
0: Just to give people a, a, a visual of this. I mean, if anybody's ever watched Star Wars when you get locked into the tractor beam and 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 it's and it's a force is just pulling you in to the ship and you can't break and they're pushing all the buttons and it's like you're going you're going into that's what it's like what you're describing it's like you're you, there's no buttons to push there's no levers to pull that tractor beam of addiction and depression has you locked in and without an intervention of some sort you know from the outside and, and a willingness to actually engage in some different behaviors you're 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 going where it's taking you and and it really is a force that you can't contend with on your own. And so I don't, you know, I think you're it's, it's right that you describe it as, you know, you can't, you can't, you can't make someone afraid. You can't fear them into it. You can't shame them into it. You can't put I mean, no. it's, it's got you and it's going and you know, you'll, we'll, we'll, we'll hear what finally turns you around, but I think it's a good description for people to understand that, you know, kids won't pull you out. I mean, there's, there's it's got you. And, and so, uh, and until you're right. ready, to, until you're ready to change, you're ready to change and see a reason to change and start to behave different. It's going to take you where it's going to take you.
1: Exactly. And by the way, another great analogy, because that's exactly what it is. There is no stick to pull up anymore in that, in, in the aircraft ah, yeah. too. That's it. Yeah. So instead of going to family court, I had this um, sense of, you know, I'm crying the entire time in my car by myself from it wasn't my car. It was a borrowed car. And um, from where I live to family, Accord, I'm just crying, just weeping. And um, I get to the exit up in Saratoga, New York. And a lot of people know that for its racetrack. And it's a beautiful town. And I stopped crying all of a sudden. And I drove right past the exit. I just watched it as I went by and kept driving. And I was in this strange space, space. headspace. And I remember it kind of vividly right now. And everything came a little bit brighter. And I kept driving. And I pulled into, I took the exit um, off the Northway into uh, Lake George, New York. And I went to uh, the first bank that I found and I went in and I robbed it.
0: I mean, that is, and it, I mean, it's, 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 it's almost surreal as you tell that story, as you sit here and you listen to the kind of the, the fog come over you and, the, and the, the stillness of the moment and things seem clear. And your mind is saying, we're gonna pull into this bank and we're gonna find another way to avoid everything that we want to avoid, and, and this time it's got some real consequences. I mean, had you, I, I, uh, had you ever had any at robbing a bank? Had 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 any of that ever come across your mind, or, or was this just literally out of the blue, so to speak?
1: This was literally out of the blue. Wow! And like I guess growing up and at different times. You know, you, you see it on TV, see it in the movies, and you're like, geez, I could never, I could never rob a bank, you know, Um, or like armored cars and stuff. And I'm not, I don't know, I guess I'm not built that way. I don't, I'm not built to think that that's somehow okay to do that. Um But I did it. And even as I'm I'm sitting here feeling now, sitting here now, I'm I'm feeling this, um, I guess what I'm feeling is guilty um, about it. And we could talk about that in a minute. But, you know, I was so out of control. And this is what I think I figured out is that. By taking that act, by doing that, by walking in, it may have been the only time at that point in my life where I had control over anything at all. You know, I had the control to make a decision. Uh clearly an awful decision, and I'm ashamed of it and I'm embarrassed by it. But I made the decision to walk in the bank and go to that little kiosk and write a note, a demand note. And stand in line and wait for my turn and go up and pass that note uh, to this teller um, and take the money, get back in my car and and just drive. And, and I drove and drove and drove until I almost ran out of gas and I stopped and got more gas and eventually made it home. Um, and I didn't tell anybody I was doing it, uh, even like the best friend or, um, the guy that I was getting heroin from, uh, you know, he wasn't telling him it about it. And, um, and then, so over the course of the next few weeks, I just, I was in this zone of, um, using getting sick And when I explain the sickness, if you've never been through it, it's hard to explain, but the withdrawals are so, it's not just throwing up and uh, sweating, you know, that's how it's kind of portrayed, but it's physical, like your body tenses up and you lose muscular control. And it's by far the most painful thing I've ever been through. Um, And I ended up you know, robbing five more banks and two um, large grocery stores at their uh, money um, at, in their offices at the grocery stores. Never had a weapon. Um, threatened violence in my note, and um, which came back to haunt me. But you know haunt me in a different way it haunted me in the sentence that i received which i deserved every single day of what i received um but before we get to that i want to tell you this quick thing that did happen yeah please i um one morning um i would robbed the bank a couple days earlier and had cash in my pocket and I called my guy and he wasn't around. Um but I knew I needed heroin otherwise I was gonna get sick. And so I drove uh into um an area in South Albany uh, and and parked my car and um Sky gets in the car. a uh, few people had walked by this one particular gentleman gets in the car. He kind of knew what I wanted. I knew he had it, and um, I told him I wanted um, a bundle of heroin, so ten bags. And as I'm I'm getting the money out of my pocket, again I'm out of my mind. I had lost my way at this point, and I pulled out all the money that I had in my pocket. And um, as I turn to give him the money, uh, he puts his gun to my head. And, um, I could feel the barrel on my head, on my, on my temple and I froze and he grabbed the money out of my hand as he's grabbing the money out of my hand, he pulls the trigger and the gun jams, the handgun jams. And, um, my, I went into a state of shock. And the best I can remember it is I pushed him away, and continued to push his body, and stepped on the gas. He falls out of the car. I just tear down the road, you know, and stop at a eventually stop at a convenience store. Pull in, and I'm seeing just white light everywhere. Um, and I go into the convenience store, and I I, I buy Charlie, I buy a pack of cigarettes, and the guy in the uh, behind the counter is looking at me, like he couldn't believe it. You know, he just couldn't believe what he was seeing. And this, where I was, I was in a kind of a tough area of town with a lot of poverty and a very underserved, underserved population of people. And so he's he had seen some rough people in rough shape, um, but he kept staring at my pants area. And I, I sort of looked down and I completely, you know, wet my pants from the incident. I didn't even know it. You know, that's how far gone I was. I didn't know what day it was. I didn't know what time it was. Um, and so I ended up driving to my friend's house and we're watching TV. And um, over the local news, they were showing footage of the of a bank robber and um my back was to the tv he's watching the tv and we're doing our thing um using and um and he looks over my shoulder and he said he goes dude that's you it looks exactly like you and i looked back and there were surveillance photos on the news and um i said No, that's not me. And there's a little bit of video. And he said, he goes, Andrew, that's you. You're wearing a suit and a baseball cap, which was what I wore to these banks. And I said, no, man, that's not me. Don't be ridiculous. He goes, well, where are you getting this money? And so he started to put two and two together. And but, you know, I'm in the throes of it. So I'm lying and I don't know what he turned me in. I wasn't even thinking that far ahead. you know, but a couple of weeks later, I got, I got caught, and uh, and I write about it. Uh, Sheer Madness isn't about bank robbery; it's one little piece of it, but it's really about what you and I talked about in the beginning, and that's, you know, how this untreated depression and um, you know, dabbling in things that make us feel better without actually getting to the source of the mental health piece. Uh, can can lead us down roads that we don't um, we never would have imagined
0: yeah look I mean Andrew this is I mean first of all um, remark remarkable how courageous you are you know Um, and and the warm blanket of shame that 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 is the addictive cycle I just want to I just want to point out your words you know it's I was out of my mind and that's really what it feels like you're in this vortex of robbing banks, getting drugs. It's, you know, the addictive life for those of you that aren't familiar with it, it becomes, it becomes the only life, you know, and so it's not like it's like all of these kind of grounding, kind of values that you would live by, I want to be a father, I want to be a dad, I want to be an attorney, I want to, you know, I have, that's why I said, and we talked about this early on, when you have a certain set of beliefs about yourself, and you're trying to overachieve them with success that those dials get turned down. And then look, I mean, uh, you know, it's no surprise that we saw Tiger Woods, a multi multi multi-time PGA major champion winner on the side of the road in a jail cell in Florida. You know, I mean, it's, this is not, this is not like, you know, I know there's guilt and shame associated with how bad we get, but we get bad. I mean, it's, we, 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 we have a certain set of beliefs that we can't live up to. And ultimately for anybody who's on that path, you know, and I'm not, I'm not, drawing conclusions about whether or not there was addiction or not. I'm just saying that we're, we want to, we want people to see us a certain way and our behaviors and what we're doing to achieve that are out of alignment. Ultimately the show ends for every, for everybody, the check always gets paid. Uh, the car will always crash. Um, you know, we can it's not sustainable. And so, you know, bank robbery, right. bank robberies, um, DUIs, um, you know, check cashing fraud, you know, the, the, the list is at infinitum. I mean, it's, it's, you know, some people can arrest it sooner, but you know, was there, I wanted to ask, was there any relief in the, at the end when you got caught, was there any, was there any like, okay, you know, uh, this is over now.
1: There was a sense of relief. Uh, the, the immediate fear was that now I won't be able to use and I'm going to get really, really sick here soon. That was my first thought. As the police, it pulled me out of my car, had me on the highway, helicopter overhead, um, police everywhere. And that was my first thought, if you can imagine. Oh, I okay. can um, Yeah. Was it, you know, in a couple hours, I'm going to be throwing up, going through withdrawals. Uh, but there was a sense of relief. There was a sense of relief that Um, I I don't have to live this anymore. The problem for me was that the issue of my children was still very much alive. And now I had, I had closed any opportunity to have a normal relationship with them. And when I talked to guys, um, and, and, you know, people who were seeking treatment and I, work with uh, lawyers and judges primarily right now, but really anybody from different walks of life, but it really has to do with, you know, even if you don't think you have a problem, you know, and and you're riding high and you believe your own press, you know, I see that you're believing your own press, you know, and I did too for a period. So yeah, there was this sense of relief, but I knew the next, you know, the next few days was going to be hell. And I was scared to death of jail, uh, had never been, little time in the brig in the, in the military, but that was over something stupid. Um, that was over a fight, but so it was, I was living this dichotomy of wanting my life to be either completely over or at least now, maybe I have a chance to get things together. So we're rushed to court. You know, I wouldn't sign the confession. They got all angry at me, even though they had me dead to rights. Um, you know, I I start telling this FBI agent who was interviewing me. Um, you know, I basically because I used to teach constitutional law at the <laughs> FBI Academy. Of course, you did. And so here I am lecturing him on you know fourth fifth and sixth amendment and it was the dumbest thing but you know charlie i wanted to feel like i was normal i wanted to feel like i wasn't this dirty guy and all the things that i felt about myself at that time um i actually um am somewhat friends now with one of the state troopers that arrested me that day it's unbelievable the story but um, You know, I get rushed to the courthouse, and I'm telling this court-appointed attorney who's representing me what arguments to make for the for bail. And you know, Title 18, United States Code, section 1846 and 44. You know, make these arguments. No, uh, 1346, 1348. Make these arguments, and he looked at me. He goes, Andrew, you, you're they consider you a bank robber and and bank robbers don't get bail. Um, and he was right. I didn't, I went to County jail. I had this, the most absurd experience of my life, uh, withdrew on the floor, um, of the, of the medical unit. Um, they didn't give any sort of, um, you know, buprenorphine or, um, any sort of, um, withdrawal medication, uh,
0: this is not and, the easy, this is not the easier, softer way up there in upstate New York uh, lockup, huh?
1: Right. Exactly. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, maybe that's what you had to go through. And well, look, I've been I had withdrawn before. That's so why I knew what was coming. Um, and then I, you know, eventually went from jail to uh, once my sentencing, I went to federal prison and um, did my time there. We <laughs>